Section three of National Geographic Magazine, Volume One, Number Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. Africa, its past and future, Part Three, by Gardner Green Hubbard. 1822 to 1897 mineral wealth of africa we are told in phillips's ore deposits that the precious metals do not appear to be very generally distributed in africa more thorough research may show that this view is incorrect and that there are large deposits of iron copper gold and other metals in many parts of the continent Gold is found on the Gold Coast, in the Transvaal, in the Sudan, and in Central Africa, but is only worked in surface diggings, except in the Transvaal. But near all these washings, gold nuggets of large size and the quartz rock have been discovered. In Transvaal, the mines were worked a long time ago, probably by the Portuguese, then abandoned and forgotten. Recently they have been rediscovered and worked by the English. In the Cop Goldfield in the Transvaal, three years ago, the lion and zebra, elephant and tiger, roamed undisturbed in the mountain solitudes, where there is now a population of 8,000, with 80 gold mining companies, having a capital of $18,500,000, one-third of which is paid up. Barber's Town, the chief mining town, has two exchanges, a theater, two music halls, canteens innumerable, several churches and hotels, four banks, and a hospital. A railroad was opened in December 1887 from the Indian Ocean towards these mines, 52 miles, and is being rapidly constructed 100 miles farther to Barber's Town. There is reason to believe that gold deposits equal to those of Mexico or California will yet be found in several parts of Africa. Copper is known to exist in the Orange Free State, in parts of Central and South Africa, and in the district of Katongo, southwest of Lake Tanganyika, which Dr. Livingstone was about to explore in his last journey. Rich copper ores are also found in the Cape of Good Hope, Abyssinia, and Equatorial Africa. Large and excellent deposits of iron ore have been found in the Transvaal and in Algiers, and a railroad twenty miles long has been built to carry it from the Algerian mines to the sea. Very many tribes in Equatorial and Central Africa work both iron and copper ores into different shapes and uses, showing that the ore beds must be widely distributed. One of the few large diamond fields of the world is found in Griqua and Cape Colony at the plateau of Kimberley, 3,000 feet above the sea. The dry diggings have been very productive, this tract, when first discovered, being almost literally sown with diamonds. Coal has been found in Zululand, on Lake Nyasa, and in Abyssinia. The latter coal field is believed to be secondary. 
iron lead zinc and other minerals have been found in the orange free state salt beds salt fields salt lakes and salt mines are found in different parts of africa railroads the peculiar formation of africa its long inland navigation interrupted by the falls near the mouths of its large rivers from connection with the ocean render it necessary to connect the ocean with the navigable parts of the rivers by railroads the belgians will soon construct a railroad on the southerly side of the congo to the inland navigable waters of the congo at leopoldville following the preliminary surveys lately completed the french may also construct a road from the coast to stanley pool and by one or the other of these routes the interior of africa will be opened south of the congo the portuguese are constructing a railroad from benguela into the interior in cape colony railroads connect the greater part of the british possessions with the cape of good hope a railroad is also being constructed from delagoa bay to the mines in transvaal sudan and the upper waters of the nile can only be opened to a large commerce by a railroad from suakin to berber about two hundred and eighty miles surveys were made for this road and some work was done upon it just before general gordon's death the navigation of the nile above berber is uninterrupted for many hundred miles below berber the falls interrupt the navigation the route from gondokoro down the nile is by boat to berber camel to aswan boat to siut and railroad to cairo and alexandria making a route so circuitous that it prevents the opening of the Sudan to any extensive commerce. In Algiers there are 1,200 miles of railroad, and more are being constructed. The French are constructing a railroad from the upper part of the Senegal River to the headwaters of the Niger. The English have organized a company to construct a road from the Gold Coast to the mines in the interior. It will thus be seen that the railroad has already opened a way into Africa that is sure to be carried on more extensively. Stanley Expedition There are two methods of exploring Africa. One is where an individual, like a Livingstone or a Schweinfurth or a Dr. Junker, departs on his journey alone. He joins some tribe as far in the interior on the line of exploration as possible, lives with the tribe, adopting its habits and manner of life, learning its language, making whatever explorations he can, and when the region occupied by such tribe has been fully explored, leaves it for the next farther on. This plan requires time and never-failing patience but in this way large portions of Africa have been explored. The other way, adopted by Cameron, Stanley, Wisman, and the Portuguese explorers, has been to collect a party of natives and at their head march across the continent. An immense outfit is required to penetrate this shopless land, and the traveler can only make up his caravan from the bazaar at Zanzibar. The ivory and slave traders, have made caravanning a profession, 
and everything the explorer wants is to be found in these bazaars, from a tin of sardines to a repeating rifle. Here these black villains, the porters, the necessity and despair of travellers, the scum of slave-gangs, and the fugitives from justice from every tribe, congregate for hire. And if there is anything in which African travellers are for once agreed, it is that for laziness, ugliness, stupidity, and wickedness, these men are not to be matched on any continent in the world. Upon such men as these, Stanley was obliged to depend. Though travelling in this way is more rapid than the other, it is very expensive, and has many difficulties not encountered by the solitary traveller. The explorer always goes on foot, following as far as possible the beaten paths. A late traveller says, The roads over which the land trade of equatorial Africa now passes from the coast to the interior are mere footpaths, never over a foot in breadth, beaten as hard as ottoman, and rutted beneath the level of the forest bed by centuries of native traffic. As a rule, these footpaths are marvelously direct. Like the roads of the old Roman, they move straight on through everything, ridge and mountain and valley, never shying at obstacles nor anywhere turning aside to breathe. No country in the world is better supplied with paths. Every village is connected with some other village, every tribe with the next tribe, and it is possible for a traveller to cross Africa without being once out of a beaten track. But if the tribes using these roads are destroyed, the roads are discontinued, and soon become obstructed by the rapid growth of the underbrush, or if the route lies through unknown regions outside the great caravan tracks, the paths are very different from those described by Mr. Drummond, for the way often lies through swamps and morass, or thick woods, or over high mountain passes, or is lost in a wilderness of waters. The great difficulty in these expeditions is to obtain food. As supplies cannot be carried, they must be procured from the natives. Very few tribes can furnish food for a force of six hundred men, the number with Stanley, and when they have the food they demand exorbitant prices. Often the natives not only refuse food to the famished travellers, but oppose them with such arms as they have, and then it is necessary in self-defence to fire upon them. The greatest difficulty the explorer meets comes either directly or indirectly from the opposition of the slave-trader. Formerly the slave-trader was not found in equatorial Africa, but since the explorer has opened the way, the slave-trader has penetrated far into the interior, and is throwing obstacles in the way of the entry of Europeans into Africa. When it was decided that Stanley should relieve Emin Pasha, he was left to choose his route. He met Schweinfurth, Junker, and other African travellers in Cairo. They advised him to go by his former route directly from Zanzibar to the Victoria Nyanza. The dangers and difficulties of this route, and the warlike character of the natives, he well knew. The route by the Congo to Wadalai had never been travelled, and he thought the difficulties could not be greater than by the old route, 
and beside he proceeded much farther into the interior by steamer on the Congo, which left a much shorter distance through the wilderness than by the Zanzibar route. On arriving at Zanzibar, he made an arrangement with Tipotip, the great Arab trader and slave-dealer, for a large number of porters. They sailed from Zanzibar to the Congo, where Stanley arrived in February 1887. He then sailed up the Congo and arrived in June at the junction of the Aruvimi with the Congo, a short distance below Stanley Falls. Stanley believed that the Aruvimi and the Wella were the same stream, and that by following up this river he would be on the direct route to Wadalai. Subsequent investigations have shown that he was mistaken. About the 1st of July he left the Congo, expecting to reach Eman Pasha in October 1887. No definite information has been received from him from that time to the present. He left Tipotip in command at Stanley Falls, and expected that a relief expedition would follow. There were great delays in organizing this expedition from the difficulty of obtaining men, and it was thought that Tipotip was unfaithful. The men were finally procured, and the expedition left Aruvimi in June 1888, under command of Major Bartolot. A day or two after they started, Major Bartolot was murdered by one of his private servants. The expedition returned to the Congo, and was reorganized under Lieutenant Jamieson. He was taken ill, and died just as he was ready to start, and no one has been found to take his place and that relief expedition was abandoned. Reports say that Stanley found the route more difficult than he anticipated. Heavy rainfall, rivers, swamps, and marshes obstructed the way. That the season was sickly, and a large part of his followers died long before he could have reached Eman Pasha. The reports of his capture and of his safe return to the Aruvimi River are known to all. These may or may not be true. Although we have not heard from Stanley for a year and a half, yet it by no means follows that he is dead, for Livingstone, Stanley, and other explorers have been lost for a longer time, and have afterward found their way back to the coast. No man has greater knowledge of the country through which his route lay, or of the character of the natives, or the best manner of dealing with them. Emin Pasha was encamped quietly for nearly two years at Wadalai, and Stanley, in like manner, may have been compelled to remain at some inland point and raise his own provisions. THE FUTURE OF AFRICA It is impossible to prophesy the future of any country, much less that of Africa, where the physical features have left so marked an impression upon its inhabitants, and where the animal life is so different from that of the other continents. It is rather by differentiating Africa from other countries that we obtain any data from which to form an opinion of its future. Africa, as we have seen, is surrounded by a fringe of European settlements. What effect will these settlements have upon Africa? Will the European population penetrate the interior and colonize Africa? Will it subjugate or expel the Africans, 
or will they fade away like the Indians of our country? If colonization by Europeans fail, will the African remain the sole inhabitant of the country as barbarian or civilized? Egypt is now controlled by the English, but its climate is too unhealthy and its surrounding too unfavorable for Englishmen, and we may safely assume that their occupation will be temporary, or, if permanent, not as colonists. They will remain, as in India, foreigners and rulers, until the subjugated people rise in their power and expel them, and return to their old life. The English rule, though possibly beneficial to Egypt, is hated by the natives, who demand Egypt for the Egyptians. Leaving Egypt, we pass an uninhabitable coast until we come to the French colonies of Algiers. It is nearly sixty years since the French took possession of Algiers. There has been a large emigration from France, but the climate, while excellent as a winter climate for invalids and others, is unfavorable for a permanent habitation, especially for infants. The births in one year have never equaled the deaths. When Algeria was first conquered by the French, it was a wilderness, but is now a garden. The cultivation of the grape has been most successful, and extensive iron mines have been opened. The French are gradually pushing their way from Algiers across the desert to Timbuktu, and also from Senegambia to Timbuktu. The expense of maintaining Algeria has greatly exceeded any revenue derived from it. Though many doubt the political wisdom of retaining it, yet the French have too much pride to acknowledge that the enterprise has been in any way a failure, and they will undoubtedly hold it, and perhaps found an empire. Senegambia and the coast of Guinea, claimed by the French and English, are low and moist, filled with swamps and lagoons, which will prevent any European colonization. South of the Congo, the Portuguese claim a wide section of country running across Africa. They have occupied this country over two hundred years. They have done little towards colonizing, and only hold a few trading posts on the coast and in the interior, dealing principally in slaves, ivory, and gold and it may well be doubted whether they have the stamina or ability to colonize this country, or to produce any permanent impression upon it. The south portion of Africa, from the 18th parallel on the Atlantic to the 26th parallel on the Indian Ocean, is generally fertile, and the climate is favorable to Europeans, and is capable of sustaining a large population. The growth of Cape Colony has been very slow, but a more rapid growth is anticipated. We believe it will be permanently occupied by the English, who will dispossess the Aborigines and form a great and permanent English state. The coast of Zanzibar, occupied by the Germans and English, is rich and fertile, the climate unhealthy. But when the mountain ranges are crossed, and the elevated plateaus and lake regions are reached, the interior resembles the Congo region. Masawa and Suakin on the Red Sea are unhealthy and worthless unless connected by railroad with the upper Nile. There remains equatorial Africa, including the French settlements on the Ogowe, the region about Lake Chad, the Congo and its tributaries, 
and the lake region. The more we learn of equatorial Africa, the greater its natural advantages appear to be. The rivers open up the country in a favorable manner for trade and settlement. Its elevation from 2,000 to 3,000 feet will render it healthy, though this elevation is only equal to from 10 degrees to 14 degrees of north latitude. Here all the fruits of the torrid zone, the fruits and most of the grains of the temperate zone, cotton, india-rubber, and sugar-cane are found. The country has been unhealthy, a great many Europeans have died, and few have been able to remain more than two or three years without returning to Europe to recuperate. These facts seem to show that the climate is not healthy for Europeans. But the mortality has been much greater than it will be when the country is settled and the unhealthy stations have been exchanged for healthier localities. Every new country has its peculiar dangers, which must be discovered. When these obstacles are understood and overcome, Europeans will probably occupy all this region, and it will become a European colony. If European colonization is successful, European civilization will come into contact with African barbarism. Where such a contest is carried on in a country where the climate is equally favorable to the two races, it can only result in the subjugation or destruction of the inferior race. If the climate is unfavorable to the white population, then, unless the inferior is subjected to the superior, the white population will fail in colonizing the country, and the Negro will either slowly emerge from barbarism or return to his original condition. The Negro has never developed any high degree of civilization, and even if, when brought into contact with civilization, he has made considerable progress, when that contact ceased, he has deteriorated into barbarism. But on the other hand, he has never faded away and disappeared like the Indian of America and the natives of the southern archipelago. Nature has spread a bountiful and never-ending harvest before the Negro, and given to him a climate where neither labor of body or mind, neither clothing nor a house, is essential to his comfort. All nature invites to an idle life, and it is only through compulsion and contact with a life from without that his condition can be improved. In Africa, a contest is going on between civilization and barbarism, Christianity and Mohammedanism, freedom and slavery, such as the world has never seen. Who can fail to be interested in the results of this conflict? We know that Africa is capable of the very highest civilization, for it was the birthplace of all civilization. To it we are indebted for the origin of all our arts and sciences, and it possesses today the most wonderful works of man. Let us hope that Africa, whose morning was so bright, and whose night has been so dark, will yet live to see the light of another and higher civilization. End of Section 3 Recording by M. J. Frank, Portland, Oregon